This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. About 20 years ago, there were two kids, really, two 16-year-olds from rival gangs who got into a fight, and one of them had a gun, and he used it. And he killed the only son of a single mother who, in court, had to sit there and, and face her child's killer. And she stood up as his sentence was being read. It was... Um, 25 years in prison for second-degree murder. And she just looked him straight in the eye and said, I am going to kill you. And he was just led away into prison, and he began to, to serve his sentence. And about 10 years went by, and one day the woman went to the prison, and he was told that he had a visitor, and it was, and it was her, the, the mother of the boy he had killed. And they began talking, and, and she told him about her son, and she asked about him. And she started coming back, and she started visiting him frequently. And at a certain point, she realized she had. She had forgiven him. And the two started spending time together and speaking about forgiveness and about reconciliation you know, throughout the, the prison system. And then... A few more years went by, and he was released, and he moved next door to this woman. And she would check on him every day and see how he was doing. Did he have a job? Did he have food? And one day, they were sitting at her uh, kitchen table, and she said to him, do you remember that day in court? And a bit abashed, to say the least, he said, yes, I, I remember. You said you were going to kill me. And the woman, again, looked him straight in the eye and said, that young man is dead. You're no longer that person. And they hugged each other, and he said to her, I love you, lady. And she said to him, I love you, son. Sentient beings are numberless. I vowed to save them. This is the first of the four bodhisattva vows, as you know. And uh, I gave a talk. It's been now a couple of months, but I, I spoke about the four bodhisattva vows and the relationship to the Four Noble Truths. And here, of course, we have a remarkable example of what it means to save and be saved by another sentient being. And Thich Nhat Hanh's wording of the vows is a little different. He says, however innumerable beings are, I vow to meet them with kindness and interest. What does it mean to save all sentient beings after all? And, you know, years ago, I, I told my partner, you know, I don't know how I ended up being a monk because so often I'm just, I just don't want to deal with sentient beings. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And she just looked at me, and she said, but, but you chant those vows every night? And then she paused. And I thought, oh, no, I, I could hear what's coming. You know, it's hard when your partner is right. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and she said, well, when, when you, and I said, yes, uh, when you're saving, when you're saying, you're, you're, you're vowing to save all sentient beings, how are you going to do that if you don't want to deal with them? And I said, well, I didn't think that part through, <laughs> <laughs> which was true to some extent. Um, you know, I wasn't that blind, of course, but it wasn't untrue. I vowed each night to save all sentient beings in some uh, metaphysical way, in some cosmic way, in some mysterious liturgical way that didn't actually involve sitting down with them and listening to them. (laughs) And of course, at the same time, a part of me knew that that's what was needed. And a part of me did want to do it. And so at first, grudgingly, and slowly, more and more willingly, I uh, began to practice meeting all sentient beings, meeting a few sentient beings (laughs) with interest and kindness. I had to work on that. And I wish I had come across Tignahan's translation because I think it would have helped me. Because, you know, the, the power of these vows, the way that they're phrased for us, sentient beings are numberless, I vow to say them, is that they are vast, they are limitless. It is a limitless vow, and that is its power. The way that Thich Nhat Hanh has chosen to phrase it is, is very doable, right? It brings it down to earth, and I think both are needed. Shugen Sensei always likes to quote Kandro uh, Rinpoche, saying, you know, it's like you're flying first class and you're looking at the window, yes, you're having your drink, and saying, yeah, may all beings be freed of suffering. <laughs> and you know, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's actually not that much. Uh, we, it's, not, it's not hard. I was saying to someone yesterday at some point, you know, it's not that hard at a certain point if you put your mind to it to be wishing, you know, to be doing the four immeasurables for someone. May you be happy and have the root of happiness. May you be free of suffering. And to be sitting comfortably in your room and doing that, and extending it to all beings, that's fine. It's quite another when there's a being in front of you, you know, who's in your face. Can you extend loving kindness to them? Can you wish them to be free of suffering in that moment? So I vowed to meet sentient beings with kindness and with interest. How many of these sentient beings do we ignore you know, in, our, in our hurry, in our inattention, in our discrimination. And the, the shift for me happened when I realized I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person who's disregarding another. I didn't want to do that to someone else. I didn't want that to be done to me. I had felt it, and I didn't want to be that person. And, you know, I know I still am. There are still times when I do that. And that's why I have vow to remember and then hopefully to do. To allow myself to meet sentient beings and to be met by them. Which you think, you would think that this is what we all want, but it's actually not that easy. You know, in order to actually really do that, you have to be willing to be deeply vulnerable. And that can be tender. We did a, a running retreat yesterday, and so people have been sending me articles and podcasts, and um, I listened to one um, 
which uh, basically described it was he was speaking himself. It was Billy Mills who won the 1964 uh, 10,000 meter race. He actually had established the world record at the time, and he's the only Westerner to ever have won that race. And he is Native American. And he described a little bit his, his childhood growing up in a reservation. And at a certain point, deciding that he wanted to run and realizing he was actually pretty good at it. And then he started winning races. And he said there was one journalist that every time there was a, a photograph would ask him to step out of it. And he said he reached a point where he thought uh, he was ready to kill himself. And, and he had been winning. And he was so devastated. And he had lost his parents, both his parents, when he was about 12. So, and I forget who was raising him. So he felt extremely, extremely alone. Talk about disregarded. But somehow he, he um, didn't. He persevered, and he decided at that moment, you know, just uh, as he decided that he wasn't going to kill himself, that he was going to run, and that what he wanted was to win a gold medal in the 10,000-meter race. And he said, you know, it wasn't about the medal. It was about something that I deeply wanted to do. And he said his father had always encouraged him, you know, to, to run. And so he trained, and he went, and the race is happening and there's maybe you know 85, 95 meters to go, and he's about 12 meters behind. There's two other runners in front of him, and he's realizing, you know, this is this is it. This is my moment. I will not have this moment again. So if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. And so he started pressing. He started pushing in, and just as he passed one of the runners, he turned to look, and on his running jersey shirt, he saw an eagle. And immediately he thought of his father because his father had said to him, you know, if you really do this, this running thing, one day you, you will be able to fly like an eagle. And he said that was just what he needed in that moment to, to give him that extra power. And he just went through and, and won and, and established the world record. And apparently later I read, you know, there were the two white commentators who were, who were um, commenting on the race, and one of them didn't even see him. And the other one starts screaming, look at Mills, look at Mills. He got fired for doing that. He got fired for bringing drama to the race. And afterwards I thought, was that really the reason or was that because he was bringing attention to a Native American? <laughs> and, and then Mills describes, so he wins the race and he's speaking to someone, and he's saying, you know, I have to go find that runner. I have to tell him that it was seeing this, this eagle that made me win, really, that helped me to win. So he goes running. He finds the other, running, the, the other runner. There's nothing on the guy's shirt. And this is how we save each other without even intending to. <laughs> And I, and I, it, for some reason, that, that, well, it did remind me of, I had a, there was a night, I was living at the monastery, and I was in my cabin. And, you know, if you see one owl, that's enough uh, reason for, for wonder. I had four, four visit us right outside our cabin, four so wet owls, which, if you know, are, are tiny. They're about this big. They're incredibly cute and incredibly fierce. 
and they were attracted, I don't know, by our light. I think we were watching a movie, you know, something explosive and forgettable. And uh, four of them, I, and I, I remember hearing that first flurry of wings, and so I threw myself on the floor, and I'm crossing the floor, and I'm saying to my partner, turn off the light, turn off the light. So she does. And as I straighten up on my knees, my eyes were just at the level, just above the level of the windowsill, and I'm face to face with this owl, with just a, a screen you know, between us. And I... You know, I could say many things about what happened then, but the truest would be to say that he saw me. And I knew this because I had been seen that way once before by someone much, much clearer than I was. He saw me completely, you know, without limit, without reservation. And it was like, um, like flames bursting or like a, you know, there's a mountain of ice and there's just this crack snaking its way up like being birthed, actually. And, you know, it felt like maybe a long time went by. It was probably just a few moments. And I realized in that moment, oh, it's another seeing that brings you into being. And that is why it is so painful, so excruciatingly painful when someone doesn't see you. And we've all experienced this at some point. And sometimes it's just fleeting. It's just a moment. And how... Um, well, devastating, devastating it can be. The philosopher Parmenides, about the time of the Buddha, actually, who was a contemporary, said uh, he was the first one who said that, that nothing arises from nothing. And that, that if that was the case, then why would things arise now? Why not later? Why not before? So that everything needs to arise together which, of course, is very much a Buddhist understanding. Without you, I am not. And in the version of the vows that appears in a sutra called the Bodhisattva Jewel Sutra, um, the first vow is phrased like this, I vow to enable people to be released from the truth of suffering. Of course, this is the first of the Four Noble Truths, which the Buddha said needs to be understood. I vow to enable beings, really all sorts of beings, to be released from the truth of suffering. And I was reading one afternoon uh, Kalu Rinpoche, who was a, a very well-loved uh, meditation master in the Kagyu lineage, I believe, uh, so Tibetan teacher. And he was saying, you know, how, how is it that if you're, you're born as an animal, how do you actually make it to the human realm? And he said, you can help them along in their rebirth by expounding the Dharma to them. And I was sitting on the couch with my cat <laughs> as I was reading this. So I looked at her and I thought, well, you know, it can't hurt. So, <laughs> you know, it's like St. Francis preached to the birds. And so, so I started reading, you know, Kalu Rinpoche to her, to her. But, you know, she's deaf. She's 20. So she's completely deaf. So I thought, well, maybe I should say this a little louder. So I started reading a little louder. And I thought, you know, she's hearing me. So I kind of went, you know, really down next to her ear. And I said it like really loud. You know, it, to her, probably practically sounded like I was shouting. And I thought, I don't know how effective this is going to be if I'm shouting the Dharma at my, at my cat. <laughs> but anyway, 
And uh, you know, notice how this, how this vow is phrased. You know, I vow to enable beings to be released from the truth of suffering. It's not saying I'm, I'm, um, I'm not vowing to protect them or prevent them from this suffering. I'm vowing to help them be released from it. And I think it's an important distinction because you know, think of a, of a parent, for example, you know, whose child is in trouble. Maybe they're doing drugs, they're with the wrong crowd, they're about to make a difficult, big, wrong decision. And as a parent, it would be natural for us to, to wish to protect our child from this suffering. It's natural to wish that they not have to go through it. But we can't do that. We can't really protect one another in that way. Not in the way that we think. And I have many, many times thought that it's probably the most difficult thing, you know, to have to watch someone you love go through something difficult that you know could be prevented if they made a different choice. But what if they don't want to? What if they can't? And so, you know, as a parent, which I'm not, I, I can't even imagine what that must be like, you know, to, to have to stand there and, and watch your, your child go through something. I mean, I... I did it with my brother, and that was excruciating. That was heart-crushing. So I can't imagine what it must be like with your child. And yet, each one of us has to walk our own path. In a sutra called the, the Bhaya Sutra, the Dangers Sutra, the Buddha is speaking about, uh, you could say, false and genuine dangers. And the false dangers are what we would think is real, you know, so there's, there's uh, somebody be- comes to a village and starts looting it or setting it on fire, and the mother is afraid of being separated from her child or being hurt. And interestingly, he's saying those are false dangers, but I think he's saying that because they can be avoided. What cannot be avoided, so the genuine mother-child separating dangers are these. There's three. The danger of aging, the danger of illness, and the danger of death. So, in other words, a mother can't get her wish with regard to her child. You know, I am aging, but may my child not age. May my child not get ill. May my child not die. She can't have these wishes. Although, you know, she may wish that they not happen before they happen to her. And, of course, these aren't genuine just for a mother and child, but for all of us. And it doesn't mean you can't support your child. You can't guide them, give them advice. But you can't save them in the way that we think. And so even that, the way the vow is saved, what does that, the, the vow is phrased, what does that mean to save another being? The invocation that Samantabhadra, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, makes, there's actually a list of ten vows for a Bodhisattva. And before that, he makes this, this invocation. May I purify an ocean of realms. May I liberate an ocean of sentient beings. May I see an ocean of truths. And may I realize an ocean of wisdom. And I, I really like how this is phrased because I think an ocean describes it well. It is an ocean of sentient beings, a universe of sentient beings, of realms, of truths, of wisdom. And that is what is needed. 
And that is not in some mysterious metaphysical way. There's this person who's really annoying you or you're waiting you know, to you know, go off to lunch, you're at work and there's somebody who's speaking to you and they really need to be heard. And you just need to take five more minutes to meet this person. That is how you meet the ocean of sentient beings in that moment. Dadaroshi would sometimes tell the story of his Dharma brother, uh, Genpo, who was a, a lifeguard. And when he was training, he asked his coach, but what happens if you have a family and you have the mother, father, and child, or maybe two kids, and they're all drowning? Who do you save first? And the coach said to him, you save them all. And Genpo Roshi said, yes, but who do you save first? And the coach looked at him and said, you save them all. That is the Bodhisattva vow. And it is impossible. And that is what it requires lifetimes. In the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha says to Subhuti, someone who gives rise to the supreme perfect thought of awakening, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhicitta, it's that thought, will resolve thusly. I shall liberate all sentient beings. And then having liberated them, she understands that in truth, not a single being has been liberated. Why is this? Subhuti, if a bodhisattva has the view of a self, a person of sentient beings, a soul, then they're not a bodhisattva. Having liberated a being or all beings, a bodhisattva understands there's not a single being to be saved understands there's nothing, no one to liberate, understands there's no liberation. This doesn't mean there's no awakening, there's no realization, there's no practice. Otherwise, what are we doing here? They're saying there's no, they don't have a view, they don't have the mark of a self, no mark of others. And why is this important, you know, to even make that distinction? Because views get us into trouble all the time. That's the conflict in our world. It's actually one view, the view of me, that takes many forms. But it's in the name of all these views that we have so much violence and conflict. And yet, the first of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path is right view. And right view, according to Buddhism, is knowing suffering knowing its root, knowing that it's possible to put an end to it, and knowing the path to do so, the Four Noble Truths. And so you see how these vows, they're very much uh, linked with the Four Noble Truths. I must understand the truth of suffering, and I vow to help others understand it, to be released from it. So you are saving all beings. Just don't think that you're saving all beings. I don't know if you listened to the, the, the Dharma encounter that uh, we did at the end of, of Sashin, I don't know, two weeks ago, something like that. And uh, some of us went to this march, and I was telling Shugen Sensei, there's that chant, show me what democracy looks like, this is what democracy looks like. And I said to him, you know, I looked around and, and, and I thought, yes, you know, and this is what it, what it looks like, you know, to, to get out of your way enough, you know, to, to say I care and to do something. 
And he nodded and he said, well, you know, you could also say, you know, show me what a bodhisattva looks like. This is what a bodhisattva looks like. And then he said, but never say that. Please don't ever say that. <laughs> so, you know, he's certainly, we're not saying don't do something for someone else. But it's the, the, because the other side of that is the danger. It's, like it's all perfect and complete. There's nothing to do. And of course, we know that's not true. There's plenty in the world that needs to be um, healed. And who are these beings that we're saving? If they don't have an independent self, an independent existence, who are they and who are they to me? And that, you know, the way I said it, without you I am not. It is that very fact. It is the fact that there are no beings to be saved that allows us to save them. That's what makes it possible. You know, when, when the woman in the story said to, to the killer of, of her son, I forgive you, he said, how can you do that? I haven't even forgiven myself. And she said, I forgive you because of who's in me. And she meant God. I forgive you because of who's in me. She could have also said, I can forgive you because of who's not in me. I can forgive you because of who you are not and who I'm not. I can forgive you because we are not two. We are not strangers. Although it so often feels that way, doesn't it? Fundamentally, we aren't strangers to one another. And we know that, actually. We know that, and that is why it's so painful when there's distance. What would this world be like if we really knew? And if it was safe, really, to know that, you know, to, we were talking, uh, the, some of the residents about, um, somebody was saying that her daughter told her when first time she came to New York City, don't make eye contact. You get on the subway, don't make eye contact. And, um, you know, and there's a reason for that. But what would it be if it was, if we could? And we do, and we do, and certainly more now than, than ever before. But if we really knew, we're not different. We're not strangers. That my brand of suffering, it turns out, is not a brand. It's not unique to me. It's not even that special, really. And, you know, if we doubt that, just, just pick up any sutra, really, any of these teachings. Read virtually any paragraph. And you find yourself, your mind, reflected there. You know, the Buddha and those who followed him combed through the mind's recesses, you know, in every possible affliction. And they documented them. And not only that, they they prescribed a remedy for them. So they've identified the illness, they've offered the medicine. And it's really, it's amazing, really. So any time that we think... I'm confused, I'm lost, I don't know what to do in my practice, in my life. The teachings are really, really laying it all out for us. We have to remember to turn back to them. We have to remember to practice. We have to do it, which is easier said than done, but it's also not as hard as we think. It's not like we're meeting some obstacle that has never been met before. 
It's not like we have to figure it all out on our own. 2,500 years of teachings of history to inform us, to help guide us. Are we using them? Are we using these teachings? So a bodhisattva enables others to be released from suffering by releasing also his or her own suffering, by recognizing another's pain as my pain, by not being afraid, not turning away from what seems alien, what seems other, by turning to someone and saying, how can I help you? That's usually the best medicine. If you're having a hard time, turn to someone else and just ask very simply, how can I help you? Sometime I've told the story of a student whose son was having a hard time and he was foreign country and she said to him, go find someone to help. And he did. He volunteered at a refugee camp and he did such a good job, they hired him. He put himself in the path of being able to save all beings and be saved by them. No fanfare, no fuss. You know, he just did what needed to be done. This is Shantideva. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless. May I be a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to cross the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. For those who yearn for land, May I be an aisle for those who yearn for land, and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a bed, a resting place. And for all those who need a servant, may I be their servant. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme healing. May I be the tree of miracles, and for every being, the abundant cow. Like the earth and all the pervading elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, For countless multitudes of living beings, may I always be their ground and sustenance. These are all the different ways in which we can save beings. To speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. It's when we do when we do the environmental work. Or for human beings who have been silenced, who've been disenfranchised, who've been told... We don't care if you live next to factories or waste dumps. Somebody has to live next to them, and as sure as hell, it's not going to be me. We, we don't have to speak for them. We speak, speak with them. We can protect those who need protection. Because although we each have to walk our own path, and I said before, you can't protect someone, we're actually at the same time not unprotected. You know, when we say, we chanted uh, this morning... Um, we dedicate these merits to the 16 guardians and to all protectors of the Dharma. Uh, The 16 guardians were the 16 foremost disciples of the Buddha whose task, if you will, was to protect the teachings, to ensure that the teachings continued. And each one of them, when they are painted, each one of them is holding something, a book, a scroll of the teachings, um, a lamp, a scroll... um, a scroll, a jewel, a lasso. And this is really what we do for one another. We, we support and encourage each other in this journey of awakening. This is what friends in the Dharma do. 
We chant the Shosamyo Kichi Jodorani every day. It's a chant to uh, prevent disasters. At, during Ango, we chant the Hakuryo, um, the Hakuryo Sun service. Uh, Hakuryo uh, is the uh, white dragon who's the protector of the buildings and the temples and the grounds. When he's not present, we do a service for our teacher, for that he may have a long life, that he may be free of illness, that his vows be fully realized. I do it every day. Why take chances? We can serve one another. As I already said, you know, offer our time, our interest, our, our kindness, our patience, especially when we don't feel it. How do you do that? Especially when you don't feel it. How do you do that? Where do you find what you think in a moment you, you don't have to give? We can inspire each other. We can carry each other across, you know, when we're flagging. We do that during Sashin. You know, very, very much, um, you know, you have one person that's just the chin on their chest, they're out. And the other one next to them is sitting toweringly. It's almost as if they're saying, come on, come on, you can do this. So don't ever think, please, that your zazen affects only you. Don't make your zazen so small. And to do any of these things, we're not waiting until we become enlightened. We do them just as the need arises. That Roshi used to say, you know, Bodhisattva practices compassion as she grows her hair. Without effort, without forethought, without self-consciousness. At the same time, it actually does need to be practiced. It doesn't just happen automatically. It would be wonderful if we just made the vow, I vow to save all sentient beings, and then we just proceeded to do that effortlessly naturally, day by day. That would be great. We have to want to turn to these beings, to turn to the world. Sitting quietly is just not enough. It's just not enough. It's a good beginning, but it's not enough. Not by a long shot. And if it was, we wouldn't need these vows, and we wouldn't need the precepts, and liturgy, and study, and work, and taking refuge. We wouldn't need a teacher. And since we do seem to need them, are we using them? You know, these incredible skillful means that have been developed really for the only reason that we can be awake. An embarrassment of riches, a friend of mine says. And actually, we don't actually have to be embarrassed. Just use them. Just use them. This is what they're for. And, and when you forget... Find some way. Find some way to remember. Which is usually, you know, just turn to someone else and say, how can I help you? Or pick up a book and read. Reach to someone else and say, I need help. That's very difficult to do. I don't know if you find that. I find that. And there's been a couple of times in my life when I've done that, when I really needed it. And it absolutely, I could almost say literally, saved me. To not be, not be afraid, not be embarrassed of that moment of vulnerability. I think that's good for today.
For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.